I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch PYF, Pretty Young Frankenstein. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? (laughs) Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fit. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Cooper, Cooper! Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or rumbarellas in their midst. <laughs> Are we going to get a hey, takedown Pete. notice from Spotify for that? <laughs> no, who knows? Have I talked to you uh, recently that like one day just twelve episodes got taken off Spotify? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just I, for random songs. You, it's a Universal Music Group has struck twelve episodes off your. Oh. I noticed the game was gone off of Spotify, which was a bummer because that is our Michael Douglas eating pussy episode. Yeah, I think Universal Music Group perhaps took it down because they were like, "This is this shouldn't be in public. This is toxic." <laughs> Yeah, so this is my favorite Yahoo Serious movie. Um, a joke that's been made 8 million times. And I thought we'd do 8 million and 1. But where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our third week of They Couldn't Make Blazing Saddles Today because most of the principal cast is dead month, which is Mel Brooks movies. Um, and we are... On the other Mel Brooks hit movie from 1974, after covering Blazing Saddles last week, we're doing Young Frankenstein, which the thing about this movie is that I didn't know if it was a hit or not. I know it's critically beloved. I know it ends up on funniest movie lists. But, you know, I actually rewatched this last October for a guest appearance on Swamp Flicks, where we covered all the Frankenstein movies. And... You know, I love this movie. This is a five-star movie. But it is a very low-key funny. It's shot in black and white. It has a few big moments that I think people really remember and call out, like the putting on the Ritz or the Gene Hackman as the old blind man as a parody of uh, a similar scene in Bride of Frankenstein. And I was like, "Is was this movie a hit? And it wasn't a Blazing Saddle size hit. But it made $90 million on a budget of $2 million. Yeah. <laughs> like, this was a huge hit. I mean, 1974 truly was the biggest year that Mel Brooks ever had. Essentially came out with what I think are probably still his two most critically beloved movies, give or take of, of producers. The thing about the producers, not a critical, not a, a, a mixed critical hit when it came out, a cult success later, now considered a classic comedy but not a hit from a box office perspective. It essentially broke even. These two fucking 50, 60 times, 40 times their their budget. Just monster successes. And this was the second Mel Brooks movie I ever... I saw Round Him in a Tights. And then was uh, before I got to Spaceballs, which was soon after this. I ended up watching Young Frankenstein. And I wasn't really sure what to make of it. I, I knew I liked it, but I noted that it didn't have as many laugh-out-loud gags as Spaceballs. And it's a movie that I've appreciated more. 
And I really appreciated it, Peter, watching it back to back with all the Frankenstein movies, because this movie is set up not as a parody necessarily of young uh, of the original Frankenstein movies. It is almost a comedic sequel to those movies. And funnily enough, the structure more than anything represents Son of Frankenstein, even though this is grandson of Frankenstein. Than it does uh, Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, while still having a few key touch points, like throwing the you know the girl who dies and uh, meeting the blind man and and some of the other things. But this it watching every it doesn't slavishly remake the original movie scene for as a scene, parody. As a parody, it doesn't do the thing that um, Dracula Dead and Loving It does, which is that it specifically riffs on specific shots. From the recent Dracula movie and um, kind of that kind of that alone. Instead, it's kind of drawing, yes, from the three three of the previous Dra- uh, Frankenstein movies, which, mind you, came out in the 1930s as opposed to like a couple years earlier. Yeah, well, and it speci- the movie specifically posits itself as a sequel. There is a character in the movie in the town who says that he lived through the other five incidents, which is a reference to, before they get into House of Frankenstein Dracula, the first five Frankenstein movies. There is there there. This is positing as a sequel. And we talked about this a little bit with Blazing Saddles, too, is that the thing about Mel Brooks is he started out with these kind of broad genre parodies that were their own movies and their own, like, take in the genre. And then as he moved on in his career and that's true of blazing Saddles, which is just a general 50s western parody and this which is a parody of the frankenstein series as a whole and then you know he's going to do things like high anxiety which is hitchcock movies big and broad a bunch of different stuff uh he's going to do silent movie which is a parody of silent movies and then as he gets later in his career, he becomes hyper-focused in like, I'm going to do a Star Wars parody. I'm going to do a Robin Hood Prince of Thieves parody. I'm going to do a Bram Stoker's Dracula parody. And it becomes a lot more focused on individual movie parodies as opposed to these like loving parodical takes on the genre itself. And, and, and I got to say like, Spaceballs is a pivot in his career when he would be like, I'm going to tease one specific movie. It is not even going to really resemble a drama. It is just going to be a silly spoof movie. This is a specific pivot point because what Mel Brooks was trying to do with Blazing Saddles was not necessarily a parody of a specific movie or whatever. He was like, I'm going to make a funny Western and it's going to say what I want to say about Civil rights. Yeah. About Westerns, about civil rights, about um, the way we treat black people in America. Yeah. And Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein are sort of this transition point when he starts to, you know, be be more of a a parody guy. But, like, I kind of want to draw a little bit of a line, a a rough dotted line between the two. Because Young Frankenstein wasn't even his original script. Originally, Gene, and I, I say this also so we can set up what Young Frankenstein is. Yeah, Gene Wilder was saying, I'm going to write a Frankenstein movie. I'm working on a Frankenstein movie. I'm trying to figure it out while they're working on Blazing Saddles. Um, and I want you to help me with that. And uh, which, by the way, last week, I think there I think um, sometimes Mel Brooks, when he's telling stories, he kind of changes the, the facts a little bit to make it funnier. Um, 
I said last week um, that Gene Wilder said, uh, or, or that Mel Brooks said, Gene Wilder, if you, uh, you know, I, I want you to do Blazing Saddles, and Gene Wilder kind of held it over his head, like, I'll do Blazing Saddles, if. That's yeah. not, uh, from Gene Wilder's account, uh, which I think is maybe to be trusted more, uh, Gene Wilder was already working on the movie, had already agreed to work on the movie, was happy to work on Blazing Saddles, and then while working on set and while they were kind of transitioning to their next project, he said, I am working on a funny Frankenstein movie. I want it to be black and white. I want it to be, uh, you know, true to the original old movies. I don't want to make a uh, Hammer style one. You know, like I'm not trying to update it uh, super, super strongly. I'm trying to replicate kind of what that was, but make it funny. And Mel Brooks went, sure, why not? That, you know, I'll, I'd love yeah. to work on that with you. And at the time when he agreed on that, he did not even know Blazing Saddles was going to be a hit. Yeah. Um, that's perhaps closer to reality. I'm going to trust Gene Wilder's take on it a little bit more than Mel Brooks making a, a joke during one of his stand-up sets. Yeah, because um, they started working on this a week after principal photography began a week after blazing saddles came out in the theater. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, as they were shooting this, they knew they were, had something of a hit that was brewing, but I mean, it got greenlit before blazing saddles had even come out. So, yes. Which and again, we talked about almost got script. Like people were like, we're not going to release this. <laughs> so yeah. 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 And, yeah. and I think that it's important and instructional to talk about like, if you just lump this all into parody, uh, you can maybe lose sight of kind of the specific reasons why people are doing this and what they're specifically trying to do with this. And, like, Blazing Saddles was not intended to be a specific parody of Shane or whatever. Um, Blazing Saddles started off as a weirdo, semi-serious script, like we talked about last time, yeah. about a black sheriff. And then, and then Mel Brooks came in, brought his own comedy guys in, and workshopped the shit out of it until it became that. With Young Frankenstein, he also said, you know what? I'd love to work on this project with you, somebody I specifically trust, Gene Wilder. Yep. And then he got in there. And then eventually, after this, right, like you said, 74, he tried to kind of backwards engineer, hey, what made me um, such a success? What brought me my biggest my biggest hits in the past? Um, and that's that kind of drove big chunks of the rest of his career. Yeah, because he, after making these two back to back, he doesn't make another movie until um, High Anxiety, trying, right? High Anxiety, which I think is oh no, it's Silent Movie in nineteen seventy six, and then High silent Anxiety movie. the next year. So, you know, you're you're right though. He's like, where else can I apply this? formula and he does silent movie and then he does the next year high anxiety and then he takes a four-year break before he kind of does spoofs of historical epics with history of the world part one um but it's interesting too because gene wilder though like even though he really respected mel brooks he did have some conditions for for mel brooks working on this movie the one thing was that he wanted to play it straighter than mel brooks brooks had played in blazing saddles and he was like my condition, he Mel Brooks recounts that Gene Wilder's condition was like, you can't be in the movie. You are not a serious enough. Like you have a, t he said specifically, you have a tendency to break the fourth wall, even if you're not trying to. I don't want this to be a fourth wall breaking movie. I don't want us to wink at the audience. I wanted to have funny moments, but have the realism and the and the sincerity of the characters that are not like laughing with the audience at how silly 
or uh, or exaggerated their being. And I do think I think that's such a key understanding to understand that even when you watch all the Mel Brooks movies, Young Frankenstein does feel a little bit different because it doesn't have in the same way that all those other movies have the direct winking to the audience constantly about like, you know, like Mel, you know, Blazing Saddles had so many of those moments where like, why am I telling you this to the audience or those sort of things? And Gene Wilder's Mm -hmm. like, I don't, I want it to make it funny, but I don't want it to be such an out and out parody that we all know we're making a movie, which Blazing Saddles literally ends with them watching their own movie in, in theaters. And that, that is why I still feel like this is an outlier in his filmography because when you get to silent movie history, world part one, high anxiety, all those other movies, it is a direct, like it's referencing the audience. It's breaking the fourth wall constantly. It is a, we are doing a parody and this isn't, isn't doing that. It has, it has parody elements, but it's not doing the, the characters are in on what a joke it is as much as all of his other movies. And I think that even like we talked about last week, like Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder, in the midst of that silly, silly, silly movie, they have like a real relationship. Um, This is as close as he ever got to making a real movie, I think, with like kind of real character relationships. Like it's a very uh, silly movie, but like I think Gene Wilder, what he's doing here is a genuinely stirring depiction of Dr. Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, Frankenstein, excuse me. Um, but Froderick. Like, <laughs> Froderick. Um, but I and and like the relationship. It's more. He has it's with, more character based. It is far more character based, and and it is far more serious. And like, it sounds like they kind of had a a push pull on what was funny, what wasn't funny, um, what what worked in the movie, and what was a little over the line. Like, you're right. Like. And, and, and I think Gene Wilder saying, hey, you can come on, but like, I actually don't want you on screen at all actually really yeah. makes sense. Because when I think of Mel Brooks in a movie, yeah, in one of his movies, uh, I think of the just irascible, like, you know, 60 words a minute, kind of like, uh, like, sorry, 60 words a second, kind of like, you know, like. He's a horn dog, and he's making as many like vaudeville cracks as possible. He's trying to smush as many jokes. It's as it's possible so vaudeville, and it's so cat Catskills comic yes. that's all playing to an audience. Yes, and 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 like, but like he's doing a movie, so he's not even leaving space for laughs. Like, yeah, he's he's uh he's he's trying to like have such a a manic ecstatic kind of relationship in all of his performances. I think. Even by the time we get to Spaceballs, it's like slowed down a little bit. But like, it's it's um he he when he does come on screen, he's playing basically, um hey, I'm the 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 um the con man. I'm the easily tricked rube. I you know he play he he only plays generally speaking like the dumbest person in the movie. Yeah. Um, and like the silliest person in the movie. And in this, like, it works a lot better to not have Mel Brooks mugging too much. I think he has like a small cameo as yeah. a voice and he's one of the members of the mob. And I'm honestly, yeah. this time I was trying to watch it and I couldn't even. I couldn't pick him out. He is I technically in there somewhere, but yes. And I also think it's funny that though, the, I think the silliest scene in the movie, which was the, you know, and the biggest scene in the movie. And I think the one that, sticks with most people from a laugh perspective, the putting on the Ritz 
Mel Brooks hated it. He thought he was kind of like, it's too you wanted this to not be silly. This is as silly as it gets. And Gene Wilder was so like we was so insistent that Mel Brooks was finally like, fine, we'll leave it in. But I think based on the tone that you want to create, this is off putting. And that was very surprising to me because that is the only part of the movie when I watched it when I was a kid that all of a sudden I felt like I was in a Mel Brooks movie. Like a Mel Brooks yeah. movie is the way I thought of it. Like that was the part where it's like he's singing a pop song and they're doing this dance and the monsters belting out these things. That is the that is the silliest moment. And it's funny that Mel Brooks was kind of like, well, wait a second. Isn't this antithetical to everything else you've tried to do? And Gene Wilder was like, no, like it needs this moment. And this is so funny. And maybe Gene Wilder just wanted to tap dance for a second. Who knows? Because he's very, very charming when he does it. Um, but yeah, it's this finding out a little bit how about how this movie was made is just so surprising to me because it just feels like it makes so much sense why this to this day feels like an outlier among the rest of his movies, give or take other producers. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and this is, while we're here, this is my favorite Gene Wilder, or sorry, it's my favorite Gene Wilder movie, yeah, but this is my favorite Mel Brooks movie. Okay. Um, this is the one that I, as an adult, have seen the most. As a kid, I watched Spaceballs 90,000 times. In terms of actual count, I will never beat Spaceballs on that front. <laughs> um, this is a movie that I... Not unless uh, you have a real mental breakdown at some point, or like, yeah, like young yeah. Frankenstein only for the next six months. Yeah, like when you're a kid and you watch baseballs once a week and you show it to Uh, friends all yeah yeah yeah, and you show it to all your friends it's cool but like if i constantly insisted on showing any movie to my friends all the time and inviting them over to watch a movie and be like the movie's Spaceballs," uh yeah definitely you should for the safety of my family you should make sure i'm getting proper help but um my uh, my hold on my movie like that i'll just say quick as back to the future 2 which i loved so much and i lent a friend of mine, I didn't own it, but uh, <clears throat> I didn't own it, but a friend of mine lent me their tape. And every day after school, I would just watch a half of it for like a year. Like I stopped watching after school TV and I just was like, I'm going to watch half. I watch Back to the Future 2 so much. Like it's, that's impossible. How do you watch it once every two days for a year? Like there's no movie that I'm going to be able to keep up to that level. Yeah. That is very funny. I have seen of the Back to the Future movies. Um I have seen Back to the Future Part 3 the most for some weird, weird. reason. I think we'll eventually cover those movies. Um yeah. We'll cover the three Back to the Future well you have to round it a month. So the three Back to the Future movies and then Welcome to Marwan. Um, welcome to Morrowind. <laughs> yeah, is that what it's called? Isn't it? Is it welcome isn't to that the? Isn't that the Elder Scrolls game? <laughs> <laughs> Not Morrowind. That's you what you said. Mar- welcome to Morrowind. Marwin. 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 Okay, maybe it's. I thought you said welcome to Morrowind. <laughs> welcome to Morrowind. I'd watch that see, movie. I would love to see Robert Zemeckis try and turn the absolutely. Du- dog shit conversations in skyrim into <laughs> into a movie script i don't know it matches his 16 hours already. of people going well let me tell you about an old wizard i i think picking it's interesting you say young frankenstein because i i would probably pick it too i think it's hard to pick a favorite mel brooks movie in 2024 when i'm 40 years old like yeah 
Because you're right. Like the the ones that I would have said were my favorite, like Spaceballs. I think even Blazing Saddles, I end up giving four and a half stars to. This is a five star movie. Producers is a five star movie. I mean, High Anxiety, History of the World, and Silent Movie were never were are all like three and a half to four stars. So Young Frankenstein is, if not my favorite, it's in there with the producers. Is my favorite. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, it is. And a lot of that, I think, is because of the warmth of it. And it's not just I think it's his I, best movie. He says it's his best movie. He says it's the best movie. He says it's yeah. not his funniest. I think he thinks Blazing Saddles or the producers is his funniest. I, I forget which one he credits in that same quote. But um, he thinks it's his, his best. I think it's a particularly very funny movie. It makes me laugh every five minutes or so, which is all I ask out of a comedy. Um, I find it very comforting and it's not just that i find universal horror movies very comforting and i have a reason for bringing this up as well uh it's that i find it very comforting in that it is a (laughs) it is a movie where you get to see gene wilder uh, a man who i miss very much as a performer um kind of be this enormous schmuck uh, who nevertheless forms a bond with this just strange ragtag group of miscreants. It's a movie that I find very comforting because Peter Boyle's performance is so imbued with Good. humanity. It's, yeah. it, it is truly like with, I think I put it nose to nose with Boris Karloff. Um, I don't know who was taller, Boris Karloff or Peter Boyle. Um, but uh, I, put, I put them at least as, as Frankenstein's monsters uh, nose to nose as, Characters that are performances that imbue the monster with humanity and make me think about what, why Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley uh, decided to um, tell this story, Frankenstein. And it makes me, um, in the end, when it has a sort of happy ending, um, Mm -hmm. that it feels like you're sort of in the comfort of friends. Um, that always makes me feel, feel well. Um, while we're talking about that, another one of my favorite Frankenstein performances, I haven't seen the, um, Danny Boyle stage production. I'm not sure if that's, that's available somewhere to watch, but, um, one of my favorite, perhaps my favorite, um, Frankenstein, uh, monster, uh, performance for the monster is, um, in, uh, Penny Dreadful. Oh, yeah. Um, that version is the most, I think, uh, in terms of we're talking film or TV, I don't know about stage, film or TV, I think is the most accurate, um, and scary version of the, the creature. Um, and I, I love that, that depiction of Penny Dreadful. Just a, a uh, I only watched, I watched the first season and a half, uh, but I remember it was very good. That's a good, really show. good I need show. To, I need to finish it at some point. Uh, Guillermo del Toro has never actually made a TV show that is worth watching, except for, except for Cabinet of Curiosities, if you count that as a TV show. And, uh, I always feel like Penny Dreadful feels like if, if, um, he made basically like a Frank, a, uh, a Victorian horror story, um, but, uh, in the mode of, say, Crimson Peak. I, um, I do think this is definitely Gene Wilder's best performance by far. Uh, uh, and by uh, yeah, far, yeah, it's so by, by far feels like a stretch, but don't get this Gene Wilder performance that often. It is. I said last time that Gene Wilder has kind of two modes. He has quiet, subdued and bored with everything. And he has manic, 
explosive energy, but usually nervous energy. Mm-hmm. And like producers is him having explosive nervous energy. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is him being like very bored with everything and very like and he's very good at deadpan delivery. And one thing I really like about this performance is you get the megalomaniac deadpan energy of a Willy Wonka with it's like combining both of those things because he is a little bit of a megalomaniac in this movie, but he's not calm which normally is indicative of his characters. And I feel like the only time you get this other Gene Wilder is probably in one of the prior Wilder movies, which, as we said, are all horseshit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very funny people making very unfunny movies. So him being like his attempt to be calm and sophisticated like his Willy Wonka or even his Blazing Saddles type, but constantly losing his cool and having meltdowns, is one of the best parts about this movie. I love his... There's two scenes of this movie where that is so perfectly articulated. Um, One where he realizes that he didn't successfully bring Frankenstein back to life. And he's like... You know, he's like, we'll just handle this as calm scientists and walk away. And he just then starts hitting the monster and be like, kill me. Just let me die. Kill me. It's great. And then the other one is when he's like, I'm going to just talk to the monster and reason with him. I am his creator. Just lock me in the cell, lock me in the cell and everything's going to be. It's a long bit. It's a long bit. And then he goes into the cell and is like, I was kidding. (laughs) Let me out. Yeah, um, he, he's like, I'll, I'll pummel you if you don't let me out of here. It's yeah. that, that I, I I love this movie because it's a story about a schmuck in, in over his head. And what he leans on to guide his sort of like troop of, um, you know, uh, other people that are in over their head, let's say, without casting, casting uh, more insults on them, um, is he uses his sort of like Ivy League prof- professorial doctoral sort of voice that he's like, I speak with authority when I talk and this is my estate and I'm a doctor and I'm smarter than you and I yep. know more than you and my grandfather is the reason that we're all standing here and you're all only here. Be-. He uses that sort of like uh, this this voice of authority and yep. then um, it just fucking crumbles immediately. I, immediately. Which happens in the first scene, too, where he's getting challenged by that student in a very funny scene. And he's like, ends up stabbing himself in the leg as he tries to scream at him to shut up, basically. I believe um, in the preservation of life! Yeah. Oh, my God. It's it, it, And that's another Gene Wilder thing, which, which we talk about, you know, like, how um, Mel Brooks is sort of... Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder are sort of having a push-pull. Um, it's not, it's not you know, one person is always on either side of the rope, but they're sort of having a push-pull scene-to-scene on manic energy versus, um, you know, serious drama. And um, in the scene, Gene Wilder, he stabs himself in the leg with a scalpel, which is an outrageous, like, you know, kind of fun fuck-up. Yeah. A- and uh, the way he very slowly... Uses his crosses his legs like a doctor to try and cover up the scalpel and <laughs> dismisses the class is is so fucking funny. The idea is like, well, if I move slow, maybe some people in the back didn't notice this. Yeah. <laughs> like that is yeah. that is so much fucking funnier than him 
like in maniacally throwing his coat over his leg or and then you know moving the scalpel or something him just slowly moving his knee over his other knee <laughs> to see it's 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 just that sort of push pull between the you know the in, human in side control of, and out of control the in control out of control of this is um is so perfect and this is a movie that like uh, Melbrooks is not a, a one and doneer at this at this time in his career. I, by the time he gets to the nineties, I assume he is. Um, but at this, at least at this stage in his career, he's not a one and doneer. He's like shooting scenes multiple times. He's giving his actors space to play, and that's part of the reason yeah. he really pushed for. I think it's a two point two million dollar budget. He has these sets that are full fledged. As 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 uh, he used a bunch and, of the props from yeah, the original Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes, as exuberant as and as large uh, as grandiose as the original uh, uh, the original productions, plus some because he needed to have some you know he needed to have some devices that were um, there for comedic effect. Um, he needed to have a, a machine with three switches, and one of them says the works on it, right? Yeah. Um, but it's not just that he spent all that money on that, that production design. It's also that he was like, I need space to play. I need, I need space to discover. Um, and one of the, the, the most common story you hear from everybody at sunset from Peter Boyle, you know, Cloris Leachman, everybody is like, like we do a take for him. We do a take for me. We do a take where we're just messing around and you never knew which one was going to actually end up in the final cut. Yeah. And people, and then people would show up, like Peter Boyle would show up on set the days even when he wasn't working, just because he was like, he he liked hanging out with this particular group of people. Um, it's very easy to turn um, Hollywood into its own sort of um, self-aggrandizing uh, story of a bunch of, you know, it's just, people were just, you know, making pictures for the glory of it, you know, kind of thing. But, like, everyone that made this movie still talks about it in kind of glowing terms and the production in glowing terms. And it was, like, fun to make. Um, yeah. Which I think I think shows through. It just, I mean, like, but there's movies like um, What Hot American Summer that I think is, like, you know, I think What Hot American Summer is inarguably one of the top three greatest American comedies. And What Hot American Summer was, um, it sounds like, Almost start to end miserable for everybody that was in it. Um, they all thought they were making a piece of dog shit, and it all just came together in the edit, right? Well, then it got released, and everyone's like, "This is a piece of dog shit," and then it yes, came together yes. through. Yeah, um, and, and I and and I, I'll say it again. I we should cover that movie top, again. I think it's top three, one of the greatest uh, American comedies ever made. It is a movie that I thought was dog shit, which we talked about the first time I saw it because I did not get it. And then I eventually got it. So you were ahead of the curve. I mean, I also, it was served up to me by my brother and all of his friends and my older sister as this is the funniest movie ever made. Um, so I could have rebelled or whatever, but like, yeah, it was not served up to me the way it was served up to you, which is like. I rented it at random at a blockbuster when I was a freshman in college. Yeah, yeah. There's a I lot guess, of funny people in this. Like, oh, yeah, I guess the it. state people made a comedy. I watched a movie by the UCB folks. Um, so, like, okay, when Strangers with Candy ended, at least they made like a pretty funny Strangers with Candy movie. It's pretty reduct. It's pretty like you know repetitive of the original show. It's it just picks up a lot of the jokes. But like, are you talking about the Wild Girls Gone movie that I've never seen? No, I've seen. Oh. I've seen the UCB movie, 
What's that? I've seen a lot of these, but the, the Upright Citizens Brigade movie called Martin and Orloff. Oh, I am aware. I've never seen it. It sucks. It's really bad. I think it's about, like, one I of them I think they did a movie themselves. called Wild Girls Gone that, like, sat on the shelf for six years, too, that everyone says is terrible. Yeah. Maybe it was a bonus feature on the Martin and Orloff DVD that I had to get, because back then, uh, I, I had to go get the DVD, and it was, like, $25 from deepdiscountdvd.com, and, uh... I was just baffled by it. I was like, this has like one funny joke every half an hour. What's going on? It's like that Whitest Kids You Know movie, Miss March, that everyone's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, I didn't actually finish that one. I remember in college, just I think eventually we just turned it off like 45 minutes in and, and just watched more Whitest Kids You Know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I... Uh... Mystery Team's pretty good, though. As far oh, as Mystery Team's go. great. Mystery Team's Mystery pretty team's good. Really, Mystery Team's really good. Um, I watched that in theaters. Um, you know, it's a really good um, presented by everybody except sketch. Donald Glover because he was very he was already getting huge at the time. Yeah, you know, it's a really good movie based on a sketch comedy show. What? Wayne's World. You seen that one? Uh, Wayne's World. Wayne's yeah. World. I don't know. It's a it's a little known sketch comedy show, but good good movie. <laughs> I'm from Wilmette. Well I'm from Schaumburg. Oh yeah, you must have loved. I it. took I took the park and ride. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. <laughs> <laughs> one one we should figure out a way we should figure out a way to do wayne's world I love is it world. i i i part of me wants to do wayne's world and part of me wants to and this is not young knocking young frankenstein one of my favorite movies of all time part of me just wants to uh use young use wayne's world as a pocket movie for the next time we watch a movie that all three of us hate <laughs> yeah uh who's the third person uh i think it was ryan boland when we were we were covering something that all three of us hated and then um we were and we ended up talking about world's a swap out movie yeah was it boondock saints yeah boondock saints well i mean we we all knew we were gonna hate that but you and ryan used to like it which is very embarrassing for the other really good like uh gene wilder moment that kind of uh underlines what we were talking about is um, when they're uh, finding the secret bookcase and it's every time he gets stuck on the other side he's screaming to put the candle back and it's funny because it's like why do you need to scream why is he panicking so much but he's put the candle back and then he fucks up and gets caught in the thing and he's like i want you to listen to me very closely do not put the candle back <laughs> and it, like again that tone to like now it's serious and I need to go back to being calm is so great. It's, I mean, it's also, obviously, it's um, underlining the performance of Victor Frankenstein, the original, too. He is normal 1930s acting. He is screaming and chanting and he's just, you know, it's stage acting where he's moving with wild abandon. And um, I think that also just speaks to what he's trying to portray. The point of this movie is that... And this is a little bit in Son of Frankenstein, too. So they're taking a little bit from that. But the grandson of Frankenstein literally thinks that his entire family is loonies and is embarrassed by them and is trying to make a name and is very defensive about it. That was the hook. That's what got Mel Brooks interested in doing another Frankenstein movie. And I think that's so portrayed well in the character that he does come from these this line of overacting kooks. And he is trying to repress all of that in his calm demeanor. And so... But, like, barely repress, repress it. One of the things I like is 
the way the second he gets to the, he's like, oh, this stupid fucking castle. Oh, uh, big. My great grandfather left me. Everyone here is crazy. And the second he gets there, he's like, where's my where's my grandfather's secret library? <laughs> like, he's like, <laughs> I got to find the secret. I mean, I'm going to see the secret library. And then one reading of the book. Uh, which I assume uh, O.J. Simpson took a lot of inspiration from. <laughs> how I did it. Um, well, if I hypothetically That's speaking, if is was if I did it as opposed to how I did it. But I wouldn't um, have done it that way. I, w- I would have been way smarter in the past. How crazy is it that the guy we all know murdered his wife and her boyfriend eventually wrote a book describing how he would murder his wife and his girlfriend i i know we've talked about a lot get away with it because he lost the the, the he lost the civil suit and then he went to prison for 15 years for trying to steal he's tried to steal some of his sports memorabilia that he sold back yeah it's not his heisman trophy but i always remember it as his heisman trophy it's a real print the legend thing for me (laughs) i gotta say like uh, look i know we're a little late on this, but our podcast didn't exist in 1994. O.J. Simpson's not a great dude. That's yeah. Good. I don't the, know if he's a bad enough dude to protect the president, but... Um, this movie is stacked with um, uh, just an amazing cast. Uh, besides Peter Boyle and Gene Wilder. I mean, probably my first, like, do I have a crush on an older lady in the 70s when I was 12 was Terry Gard in this movie. Do you remember how when you were 12, how sometimes it was just, like, frustrating how hot people were? I know. Like you were In like, a black and white movie, too. And I don't think I was like, I don't know who this person is, but this may be the most gorgeous person I've ever seen in my life. That's how I felt when I watched this as a kid. I was like, Unfortunately, this is the hottest person I've ever seen. Yeah, I felt that way about when. Also, watch while watching this movie, I felt that way about Terragar and Madeline Kahn, um, which also Madeline Kahn, extremely hot in Blazing Saddles. While we're doing these these tantra quickies, we don't always get to talk about how hot Madeline Kahn is in an episode, and it's just, it's frankly a loss for our yeah. entire audience. Um, I apologize. Uh, I will re- be releasing a notes app apology that releases more details about why Madeline Kahn is hot and why I should have mentioned it a week ago. But yeah. the point here is this, that Terry Gar and Madeline Kahn are hot and they look hot in this movie. And that when you're 12 years old and you watch a movie that has people that are so insanely hot, um, you feel like you're literally, and I don't mean this as a euphemism in a Mel Brooksian way, uh, you feel like you're literally going to explode. Like your body is not, cannot contain your feelings. There's nothing worse than like being 12 in 1995 <laughs> or 6. When I watch this and being like, okay, how do I marry this person and have a time machine? <laughs> you, you literally, you, you, because when you're that age, you're, you're literally like so far away from having sex with an adult woman that you're just like, it's like you're watching, it's, it's like you're, um, you're, you're an interstellar and you're Matthew McConaughey watching your child grow up on camera without you. You're just like, I should be there. I should be I should, there on the other how, side. Yeah. Of the how do I be there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I didn't, you know, growing up, I didn't want to be a cowboy or a samurai or a ninja turtle. I just wanted to. You want to be meet Terry, Terry Gar before stare. before she met Doctor Frankenstein. I know. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, she's so funny in this movie. Too. She's so good. Um, but uh, yeah, it uh, it was it it you know it's kind of one of those atypical things where like 
you're watching a black and white monster movie. You're like, I don't know how to marry this person. <laughs> you're like, do I got to stick to more realistic goals like people my own age, like Christina Ricci? <laughs> Should I try to marry her instead as a 12-year-old who just watched Casper for the oh, first time? <laughs> Christina Ricci is still out of both of our, our grasps, unfortunately. Very much so. Although, you know who she did marry? Is this going to be sad? <laughs> yeah. She was is it, is it like married or engaged to him. or something? <laughs> no. No, that's Charlie Theron. That's a different kind of sad. <laughs> um, uh, fuck. It is, it, it's going to make you sad. Oh, uh, Owen Benjamin. Oh. Okay. Sure. I mean, before he went. Is he funny? <laughs> do you know who... I, yes. Okay. Do you know? Do you know where he's been lately? <laughs> no. Where's he been lately? Oh, he became a crazy, like anti-racist Trump comedian, like so bad that even they disowned him. Oh, he did I stuff didn't know for like PragerU. I didn't know this. I remember him from like early Twitter, not being a complete nut job. Yeah. No, he went completely nuts. He called Barack Obama the N word, like. Oh, yeah. interesting. I mean, he he got banned from everything, and no one. He's he's like a, um. He's like a like even the right wing is like you. You're, you're too out there for me. You're even the even the alt right is like you went way way too far. I just googled Owen Benjamin and I saw his face and I was like, oh, I was thinking of a different Owen. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> uh, but yeah, he and he was engaged to Christina Ricci in the in the late two thousands. So I'm like, Peter, I'm not saying that we actually have a chance, but I'm just saying human scum has had a chance. Human scum has had a chance. No, <laughs> if you're saying human scum had a chance, yeah, I mean it's not out of the realm <laughs> of possibilities as non-human scum. <laughs> Uh, although he, she is married to Mark Hampton. I don't know who that is, but yeah, I hope he's, if he's not above a six, I hope he's, I hope he has at least $60 million. I hope he's appeared in no PragerU. Listen, we're not going to hope he's appeared in no PragerU. Okay. Last. (laughs) Less than Uh, five? Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, but yeah, it, it, it is, uh, Terry Gar is so good in this, especially when you consider that Terry Gar was like, I believe like, um, an assistant on the Sonny and Cher show at the time. Like, uh, I'm trying to remember her role on it, but she was like, not a like major star by any stretch. And she just liked, she just liked Mel Brooks movies, I guess. And, and she auditioned yeah. for the role and, uh, she, she was, was in the conversation Mad- the same year. So. Yeah, yeah, um, ungarlievable. Um, she was going to be, um, she was auditioning for Madeline Kahn's role, and Mel Brooks basically said, like, well, she didn't stand a chance because Madeline, I cast Madeline Kahn, I think, kind of before the movie even started. Yeah. Um, but I told her to come back the next day with a German accent and try out for this other role, and and she got it. Apparently, she was doing an impression of somebody she knew, and she. She got it. Cloris Leachman also did an impression of somebody they knew and just kind of kind of winged it, um, which yeah. is so funny because these are like indelible accents. And I think yeah. while we're talking about that piece right now, I think um, some of the mannerisms in this movie 
and some of the way the scenes are laid out and yada yada. I've kind of like backported when I think about the old Frankenstein movies, I actually think about stuff that this movie is doing. Yeah. So like, I don't think about Frankenstein and the little girl by the water when I think of that. Like when people are discussing Frankenstein as a story, I don't think about Frankenstein's monster and the and the little girl by the water and picking the flowers, you know, sort of beautiful sort of Germanic looking lake. Um, I think about uh, Frankenstein's monster and the little girl standing next to a well. That's just, and like the sort of ominous, ominousness yeah. of a well sitting directly in front of them. Um, when I think about the people that are on Frankenstein's periphery, I think about basically a Cloris Leachman figure, but just with a different face because Cloris Leachman has a very specific face and I'm familiar with a lot of her roles. Like, I, when I think of, uh, when I think of, uh, Igor, I think of Marty Feldman and his bulging eyes, even though the original Igor figure from the movies is... Igor. Igor. Um, <laughs> you mean Froderick. Um, doesn't <laughs> I think, really I look think the like pettiness. That. I think the pettiness of those two is my absolute favorite. One of my favorite parts. Of this yeah, I, I just... I Do you get what I'm saying? That, like, yeah. I, I think... I mean, Peter, I, like, I know you haven't done this, but if you ever feel like watching... Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, and then this, you're going to feel like it's part of the same continuum. Like, it is not... I mean, technically, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein exists within that continuity. So, I mean, it is not that far removed. It feels at home within those movies. So, and yeah, those things do get mixed up. Which is which is in which one. I get exactly what you're saying. It was such a fun exercise to do that because... Um, it made me appreciate beyond just the trivia bits that like, oh, this used the same props and stuff like this, how much it felt like part of the same story and universe. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be honest, like at this point, you know, you know if we're going to rank all the Frankenstein movies, I quite love the two James Whale uh, original movies. I haven't seen Son of Frankenstein in a long time. Um, I remembered kind of... It's really good. Movie. Son of Frankenstein is like so good that it's kind of crazy that no one talks about it. Yeah, and I, I haven't seen it in a long time. I feel like I, I probably deserve that for the next Spooktober or something. Um, but the... This, like, this is, just as I said, you know, I, I, I think about the depictions of Frankenstein being nose-to-nose. I feel like this is, like, in terms of depicting what the themes are of the original book, this is kind of, like, it, 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 it's it's um an expansion on themes of what the original book did. So it kind of yeah. works. I, it, well, the original Frankenstein movie, um, the James Whale movie, let's say, um... And the Bride of Frankenstein, similar to actually Reanimator and, Re- and Bride of Reanimator, they kind of like form two halves of what the um, the original uh, literature piece is about. Um, but it doesn't explore all the themes there. And the depiction is not totally one-to-one with what the original author intended. There's still room to, to play, even though these, these characters have been so well depicted on the screen. And I think that... Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that... Um, having a Frankenstein movie where um, the doctor um, decides to embrace the monster at some point and uh, even exploit him 
isn't just like riffing on King Kong and what have you. Like this is that's actually like an expansion of of what the original novel like discussed, which is like there's all these things he could have done with his son. He yep. could have embraced him as his own son. He could have exploited him. There's all these things he could have done, and instead he uh, chose to reject him at his at the the the, the cost of his own his own life. Um, and I do love Gene Wilder playing, playing the, 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 basically the mother of the monster. Like he's, uh, he even refers to himself as a mother and, um, Mel Brooks or or, or somebody basically said like, oh, I wanted Gene Wilder to play him as like the Jewish mother of the monster at a certain point. I wanted him to be like (laughs) a little cloying, but very demanding. I wanted him to have high ambitions for him, you know, like sort of. The, the stereotype, let's say. Yeah. These are not these are not my words, of course. Um, he wanted him to play into that stereotype of a, of a, of a Jewish mother. Um, and I feel like having a movie where the, the, the doctor actually embraces the monster is a good expansion on the formula because it's so rarely on screen and it's almost never depicted in any of the main movies. Yeah, I mean that's why Son of Fra- that happens a little bit in Son of Frankenstein, which I think is why it, this this mirrors that a little bit as Grandson of Frankenstein, but not to the not to the extent. Yeah, it is sweet. He does love the monster. He does want to make him alive in a way that like he doesn't cut bait as quickly as in the James Whale movies. It's like, uh, oh no, there he's. He killed a child and they're coming after me. I'm going to go marry this. Do you remember the funniest thing about the Frankenstein, which is a movie I've seen so many times but hadn't seen it? I mean, I know I had seen it like in the last five years and then watched it again. Do you remember there's a scene in that movie where the monster's rampaging and he's like, well, he's gone. Time to get married and have a wedding. Like, I totally forgot. No one remembers that scene. But he does. He just taps out. He's like, well, I lost that one. It's I'm going to get married to this like, lady. That's how the original book works. Yeah. Um, that's how the, the um, um, what's his name, Kenneth Branagh movie works. Um, he at some point is like, well, We didn't not- cover that movie. We just all watched it, right? We all watched it and talked about it. And then we ne- never did a Spooktober uh, wrap up. So I never yeah. actually really got to talk about it. But uh finding out that that's what the the book book, it's true to the book i know finding out that's what the book was like i'm like this book sucks which which (laughs) it's a it's one of the greatest books of all uh, ever written it's an incredible book but it is a movie about a guy basically like wiping his hands of his child because he doesn't like how it turned out and i'm like oh there's a movie about deadbeat there's a book about deadbeat dads yeah Um, very much so but uh, the the book is the book is so good. It's also like a great. It's a great allegory for bad parenting. It's a great allegory for like, um, like I think geopolitics, like creating a problem and then just letting the problem go wiry and just be like, ah, oh, I didn't actually do that. Um, it's not my kid. It doesn't I'm gonna look get like married me. to a lady. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we talked about the Kenneth the Kenneth Branagh uh, one uh, in chat, but we never actually talked about it in. Um, uh, on the podcast, but the, the the my singular memory of that movie, what, what has this been? Uh, five months later? Um, yeah. My singular memory of it right now is the monster is, is given form. The monster comes out in a big uh, goo puddle. Um, they wrestle in the goo puddle in one of the most unintentionally funny scenes that's ever been put in a hollywood movie outside the room and then he 
accidentally hits the monster on the head with a big hammer and then gets mad at the monster for getting hit on the head with a big hammer. Yeah. And then he goes, I don't like this monster anymore. You taste like burger. I don't like you anymore. And then within a, the, the monster space hunts of a, him down to the ends of the earth. With a space of a scene cut, he's like, I'm going to fucking chop this dude up with an axe. And then the monster's like, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> like this guy, this guy wrestled in the, I wrestled in some goo about eight seconds ago. Now it's, now it's kill me with an axe. <laughs> Last thing I'll say about that movie is like, it really was. So, you know, you're watching it. And there's all this added stuff when you, when your primary understanding of the story of Frankenstein is the film Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And you've never read the book. And I'm watching this. So like, what a typical 90s excess movie. Just fucking throwing it. Who needs all this? This is nonsense. This is terrible. This is nonsense. And then, like, going and looking a little bit afterwards, I'm like, wait, that was the 30s movie? It's like, we're just going to use the major things and make up all. This is the one that's following the book? This is like, it felt like we got a such, which wasn't a very 90s thing to do. Let's expand the story that everyone knows. But instead, <laughs> Brano was like, let's give them the Frankenstein that Mary Shelley created. It's like, well. Did you uh, know that Antarctica is such a big part of the book? <laughs> I mean, again, I had one of those weird blind spots where, like, for some reason, I probably some weird thing that I had in my head that I just decided was true and then never, like, in investigated that in any capacity it was like oh yeah in the 30s they they were constantly doing like screen adaptations and book adaptations they probably just adapted the book and then like that's what i thought the book yeah. was i had no idea that the book was like fucking he finds pirates in antarctica and and <laughs> frankenstein walks on the ice to murder him and then is like talking all the time too like, yeah I, it's no i no idea it's not B for B, Weird but like spot. it's a it's a it's a great book. It's 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 worth reading. It's one of the few pieces of like you know, uh, I would say one of the few pieces of like horror literature that hasn't been like outmoded by something else. It's 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 a great book. Um, but uh, yeah, the, what else we gotta say about Young Frankenstein? But uh, yeah, rerouting us back to the actual movie. I feel like the funny part about this is that in certain ways kind of it, it kind of adapts parts of the book that you know we we didn't get in any of the previous adaptations and the uh the moment when peter Boyle's revealed to have some intelligence because he uh he had some procedure where i think some of his intelligence was transferred over from the doctor to him that moment is like truer that true to the original book than the thing which is the original book he's like this guy he's like this guy who has like trouble expressing his feelings he has trouble expressing who he is he doesn't know who he is he's been rejected by everybody including his only parent uh but in this he's like he's like you know what because i was shown a little bit of love and a little bit of attention by my father figure i'm doing all right all right he's doing great we actually some brain brain stem (laughs) <laughs> and in exchange, he got a giant dick. Yeah, it's it's a it's a um, it's like a good exchange where it's like all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, literally, it, it's 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 kind of like the joke, like um, the joke about Matilda and Carrie. Have you heard this joke? That um, Matilda is just Carrie, but um, Matilda actually made friends and had a good parent figure in the, oh, in true. her life. Like it's yeah. basically the same story, you know. Um, it's, it's just uh different different uh, peer influences and and different parenting figures you know uh, Ca- uh carrie deserved 
um, her Miss Honey figure. Um, yeah, no, that's a, I, I like that quite a bit. And um, I feel like, that way about this is that Peter, and, and Peter right, Boyle's I, monster got a nicer parent. So he ended up not murdering people, you know, endlessly. Yeah. And, uh, and people that would end up happening. Yes. Like Frankenstein doesn't end up with his, uh, his fiance, but his fiance was very clearly not into him and he was into her and that was a mishmash. And then meets terry gar and she's like yeah we're let's have sex all the time he's like that's actually what i'm looking for but then madeline Kahn's like what i want is a big dicked monster that's my ideal situation as well (laughs) (laughs) so everyone ends up sleeping together it's it's a great yeah i I think that up until the like last 10 minutes or so it feels like this is one of mel brooks's most age-appropriate movies yeah um my dad bought it for me on VHS. It's pretty squeaky clean until the last it's 10 PG, minutes. It's PG, yeah. Yeah, and, and then what I would say, is, and obviously PG before... 1974 PG. Yes, obviously PG before PG-13 was even in the conversation. Um, before Steven Spielberg could go to the MPA and be like, you should do this. I want to pull out more hearts, but make sure kids can see it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like uh, the like only real misstep in terms of jokes in this movie, which is, you know, Blazing Saddles has a bunch of homophobia in it that makes me kind of like, eh. Same with producers. At some point, I just kind of, you know, get like, eh. Let's... They, they should, they should, they, they, you know, they should have uh, extended some sympathy or humanity for, for these characters. Yeah. Uh, the only real issue I have with this is uh, it does kind of have the, 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 the um trope that um if your rapist is good at sex that it's not rape um yeah which which uh like honestly like it's not just that that's offensive or whatever it's that 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 scene isn't funny it's it's that it's like those two should have bonded over something that was like a funny commonality between the two of them and Madeline Kahn and Peter. Or Boyle. she just is like amazingly turned on. And that's the funny joke. Like, oh, you weren't a, a turned on in any capacity by Gene Wilder so much that you dodged a blown kiss. So yes. that it didn't, didn't hit you. Uh, and then you see Frankenstein's monster and there's something that. Yeah, you see. Uh, Fra- he's, she saw Frankenstein's monsters monster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh yeah i mean that that part is it's uh, the only note i'll make is in the last 10 or 15 minutes they have a really weird rape joke um and i do love the sort of bit that like madeline khan is it went from um stuck up rich girl who is it's really unclear why she's even with gene wilder or even likes him to um just sex fiend for frankenstein's monster so much so that she's doing like dress up in the bedroom to get him more excited and he's like she is a sex freak i i cannot hand this is too much woman for old frankenstein's monster like i i think that's a funny i think that's a funny bit Uh, honestly it's madeline khan so like honestly like if you could add another few minutes in there where you know we get to see a little bit more of her character before we get there that's really my only gripe gripe with this as yeah. far as i'm comedy from 1974 that's about as inoffensive as a movie gets yeah uh yeah this movie's great i agree this is probably i i have no qualms with calling this the best mel brooks movie you agree mel brooks agrees who star you with him we talked about how the first three movies that we covered are pretty unassailable unassailable 
and pretty consistently calls his three best movies. Like, you may like Young Frankenstein, you may like Blazing Saddles. I don't think anyone necessarily makes a case for literally any of his other movies being his best movies. It's basically, of his first four, take out the 12th chair, and it's one of the other three. Uh, So we decided to do the one that we've seen the most and probably has the biggest continual cultural impact and was the one that I, yeah, showed to everyone, thought was one of the funniest movies of all time. I haven't watched it in, if it's been 20 years, I'd be surprised. It could be 25 years or 23 years just because I watched it so much in junior high and high school. So next week's we're rounding out this month. With Spaceballs, and then holy shit, do we have a list of movies we're going to talk about covering over the next few months. So, uh, Tantric Quickies ends next week. The only way a quickie can end with balls. <laughs> Spaceballs. Good night. to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>